This is not a podcast episode about running. This is a podcast episode about life. This is a podcast episode about you. Here's what I'm talking about. Failure doesn't stop people. It's the fear of failure that stops people. <laughs> and I think that throughout the course of any given day, people fail more than they realize. They're just little micro failures. You, know, you might send an email that falls flat and that's a failure. And I encourage people to experiment with failure. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today I bring you Dean Carnassus. For years, I struggled to find the clarity of purpose in my life and the single-minded focus that I had when I was an athlete. You know, it just felt like I was working hard but not really getting any closer to where I wanted to go. And to be honest, I really didn't even know or have a clear vision on where I wanted to go. Then I discovered a powerful four-step blueprint that I began to apply to my life, and it changed everything. Now, every morning, I'm excited to attack the day because I have a clarity of purpose and I have confidence in my plan and I have peace of mind in knowing that I'm back on that path to elite success. Anyone, and I mean anyone, can use this four-step process to recreate the key elements in the life of an elite performer so you can regain that clarity of purpose and that single-minded focus so that you can both achieve your goals and live a balanced life. I created a, a free PDF for you outlining the four-step Reveal Your Path Blueprint for Success just go to jimharshawjr.com slash blueprint. That's jimharshawjr.com slash blueprint to get instant access to that free PDF. Dean Carnassus was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. This guy's a runner. He has pushed his body and mind to inconceivable limits. I mean, I could go on and on, but I'll give you just a few of his absurd accomplishments. He's run 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. Uh, he ran across Death Valley in the middle of the summer in the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which he won. He's run a marathon to the South Pole. He's run across the United States 10 separate occasions. He's run a 200-mile relay race by himself, right? There's other teams of like 12 people and he's by him. He's run the whole thing by himself. He's just absurd. I mean, he's won ESPY awards three different times. He's been to the white house. He's been a, an ambassador overseas for the United States. I mean, just all kinds of things that he has accomplished. He's been on every news media outlet you could possibly imagine, you know, 60 minutes and the late show and CNN, NPR, Howard Stern show on and on and on. I mean, you name BBC, you name it you know, time Newsweek. He is an absolutely incredible individual. You're going to get so much out of this is not an episode about running. Like if you're not a runner and you're like, ah, it's not for me. That's not what this whole thing's about. I just read his most recent book, which is really about some of his running experiences. And he's written multiple books. One of them was a New York times bestseller. This latest book is such a fascinating read. I'm not really much of a runner. I run one day a week. I work out several other days a week doing other things. Sometimes that includes running. Sometimes it doesn't. I checked the box of running a marathon last year. It's something that is part of my workouts, but I don't consider myself like a runner. But man, what a fascinating book. What a fascinating interview. His newest book is called A Runner's High. And he talks a little bit about the concept of the runner's high in our conversation, but really what he's talking about is the ups and downs of life, the ups and downs of trying to live life in accordance with who you are and what you value and the pain and suffering that that requires. 
but it's also the difference between inspired action and hard work. I mean, this is inspired action for Dean. I mean, sure, it's hard work, there's pain and suffering, but man, he is inspired to do what he does and he reveals where this comes from. So check out my interview with Dean Carnassus. Let's jump right in, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and how you got into running? Yeah, so I grew up in LA and my earliest childhood recollections are from running home from kindergarten when I was five or six years old. I literally couldn't sit still in class. I remember the bell would ring and I'd just bolt out of there and run home. I, I love to run. And I ran competitively in high school as a freshman and we won the uh, state cross country championships. And then at 15, I stopped running altogether. I decided that um, I was wasting my time. It was boring, stopped running. You know, I graduated from high school. I went to college then I went to graduate school and then I went to business school and I got an MBA. And I had a very comfortable, you know, corporate job in San Francisco. And on the night of my 30th birthday, I was in a bar with my buddies, you know, doing what a lot of us do on our 30th birthday. I was in there, you know, drinking with them. And at midnight, I told them I was leaving. And they said, you know, where are you going? It's, it's your 30th birthday. Let's have another round of tequila to celebrate. And I said, no, I'm going to go run 30 miles to celebrate instead. And they looked at me and they said, but you're not a runner. You're drunk. <laughs> and I said, I am, but I'm still going to do it. And I walked out of the bar, and I'll never forget this. I didn't own running gear, but I had on these comfortable silk underwear, these silk boxer underwear. And so I peeled off my pants and just threw them down the alleyway and started stumbling south into the night, knowing there was a town called Half Moon Bay that was 30 miles away. And I thought, you know, just run there. And I ran straight through the night, didn't sleep. You know, I sobered up about halfway through, and I thought, what the hell am I doing? You know, this is not a good idea, but I, it just felt right. And uh, I made it to Half Moon Bay and, you know, decided at that point I was going to become a runner. Were you in shape? I mean, were you prepared to run 30 miles? Had you been working out at all? Or tell me where you were at that point physically. No, I mean, I hadn't run in 15 years. I was in horrible shape. I think I was part of the impetus to do this. It was just, you know, like, how do you hack yourself into something different real quickly and, you know, fueled by <laughs> bad tequila? I say I ran 30 miles, but I mean, I hobbled, I stumbled, I, you know, it was, it was not pretty. It wasn't good running. And there was, you know, chafing where the sun don't shine and blisters and all that kind of stuff. So I'm part of an organization called F3. It's a men's fitness group and it's always free, always outside kind of deal. We serve what we call the sad clown. And the sad clown is your typical guy who's working the corporate job, he walks around smiling, you ask him how he's doing, he said, yeah, everything's great, everything's fine, but inside, he's dying. Like inside, you know, he either hates his job or he's just not fulfilled by it and he feels like there's something missing in his life. Was that the impetus or I'm, don't let me put words in your mouth if it wasn't, but I'm curious, like what makes a 30-year-old guy with a corporate job just say, screw it. I'm going for a run. You run 30 miles. And then eventually, you know, you quit your job and this becomes, this becomes your job. This becomes your life. Yeah. I mean, I think it's Thoreau that, you know, that wrote that most men live a life of quiet desperation. And I had followed the kind of the prescription for happiness in, in our Western culture, you know, go to a good college, you know, get an MBA, get a good job, you know, have uh, stock options. You know, I had a company car, you know, 401k matching, you know, that paycheck, you know, bonuses, you know, free corporate health care, all that kind of stuff. And 
you know, that's supposed to bring you happiness, but it, it wasn't working for me. <laughs> I was kind of miserable. I hated being a business guy. It, you know, it, it wasn't who I was. I felt very conflicted every night because I thought, yeah, you're making a lot of money, but you hate your job. You hate, you know, tomorrow morning, you're going to hate getting up. And are you going to do this your whole life? And it, I think it came to an impetus there on my 30th birthday. I mean, I know 30 is kind of young to have a midlife crisis, but I think that's what I suffered. I kind of saw the the writing on the wall, like, you know, are you going to wake up at 50, you know, on your third wife, you know, driving a red sports car, fat and bald and miserable? <laughs> or are you going to, you know, do what you actually love to do? And that's just running. You know, are you going to follow your passion? You know, are you going to follow the prescribed path for happiness, which it just wasn't working out for me. Did you know that night or maybe the next day that like, yeah, running is going to become my thing? Or was it a process of discovery for you? It, it was a process of discovery. I started running more frequently and then I learned about these things called quote unquote ultra marathons, you know, that were many, many miles of nonstop running, you know, 50, 100, sometimes further than that. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I really want to do these sort of events. But, you know, what do you get? Like, what's the prize? And, you know, you get a belt buckle. <laughs> so I thought, you know, there, there's no way to, to keep the lights on. I mean, let's let's be a realist. You know, you, you live where you live and, you know, you live in this time that you live in and there's rent, there's a mortgage, you know, there's car payments, there's all those kind of things. How are you going to you know keep that together if you're getting a bunch of belt buckles? At first, I was kind of like, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work out, but I was pretty dedicated to it and just taking it as far as I could. And so when did you get to the point where you began earning money from doing this and earning sponsors and, and actually quit your job? Yeah. So I got approached, I finished a, a hundred mile foot race uh, and I got a pro and it, a lot of these, these races are, I should say they're you know, they're through the wilderness. So they're on mountainous trails and I finished the event and a couple of representatives from a company called the North face came up to me and they said, you know, we we've heard about you and, you know, we, we kind of, done some reading about you and we'd like you to help us design some specific trail running shoes. You know, would you like to help us? And, you know, at first I thought, eh, I don't know if I want to moonlight. And then, you know, I said, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. And they started walking away and not, you know, five steps <laughs> in their walk that I, you know, say, I've got, Hey guys, I just changed my mind. Yeah. Like where do I sign? So that was kind of the, you know, the intro into it. And then I, I wrote a book. I had on my life list, you know, write a book like many of us do. And I wrote a book and I kind of checked that off my bucket list. And I thought, you know, if five of my buddies buy this book, I'll be lucky. And it was a, a New York Times bestseller. Like overnight, it, it sold hundreds of thousands of copies, you know, and it's now in print in, you know, I think 21 languages. And I saw the power in that. I said, you know, there's more because the, the book is about, it's about running, but it's also about life. I learned that from that book, there's more to, ultra marathoning than just running. It, it transcends running in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I think it does. There's struggles and pain and suffering that you go through. I want to dive into that. Before we do, Dean, I want to explore something you mentioned in your latest book. Uh, you talked about being domesticated, right? And you said that, quote, inside every tame man is a wild beast yearning to get out. Why do you think that is? I think we feel very contained by the life we're living these days. It's very structured and cultivated, if you will. And at heart, we're wild animals. <laughs> you know, I mean, what do we want to do? Uh, and what we actually do are two different things. So, you know, to me, being kind of a feral beast, being an animal again, 
although I'm not hunting down prey, but I'm in a way still pushing my body in that same sort of way. There's something very animalistic and very pure to who we are as a species. I agree. I think a lot of men and women feel the same way. Like there's just, there's more, right? And to reference again, the podcast where I interviewed actually the founder of F3, and he said, somewhere in the hearts of men, I believe that we don't always want it to be easy, right? We want the challenge. We seek out the challenge. And I think we're wired for that. And you, you get into this sport where, you know, you're earning a belt buckle, right? If you're lucky. And so there's not a whole lot really in it in terms of like extrinsic rewards. As a matter of fact, you mentioned in the book, you finished the 100K race. And at the end, you got the same medal as the person who was in the same race. They have different distances for the listener. There's a 20 miler, a 50K, a 50 miler, and then the 100K. And everybody got the same medal, no matter what race they did, no matter what distance. And you felt that was appropriate because you said, you know, the person who ran the 20 miles may have struggled just as much as I did running the 100K. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of ultra marathoning is that, you know, it's very inclusive and it asks someone to push themselves beyond what they think they're capable of. And for some person running 20 miles through the mountains might be the toughest thing they've ever done. And they work so hard to get to that finish line. They might not have the ability to train and, you know, and to dedicate themselves to running as much as I do. But they struggle and they face the same sort of hardships just getting to the finish of a 20 miler, you know, that I face getting to the finish of a 62 miler. And I think that we're kind of equals in that regard. I think we're kindred spirits. And I think that, you know, running is the most democratic of all sports because we all do it the same way, right? We always put one foot in front of the other and run. It was such a beautiful thing that we all got the same medal and it's the same t shirt as well. <laughs> the t shirt had, you know, the 20 mile, the, the 50K, the 50 mile, and the, 100k you know on the logo so we we all got the same for the listener who is saying man that that's great for you dean and you know jim i ran my first marathon this past year right and and kind of got over that hump that i wanted to get over in terms of running but a lot of people never do that as a matter of fact in, in the book you mentioned a great quote was uh, one of your sponsors had said do you you know dean what what is an average person run a marathon in what time, what's the time that an average person can run a marathon? You said, well, the average person doesn't run a marathon, <laughs> you know, but like for the listener who's saying, yeah, that's great for you. I'm just not a runner. Is it about the test? Is it about the adventure? Is it about pushing yourself and seeking those limits? I mean, why do this kind of thing, whether it's running or, or anything else? I mean, I think you said it perfectly that it, it's the test. It's the lesson you learn from pushing yourself, you know, the, I'm Greek, the Oracle at Delphi said, know thyself. And, you know, to me, there's, a, I, I requote that as, you know, to know thyself, one must push thyself because <laughs> you don't really learn about yourself unless you're facing adversity and running holds a mirror up to you in, in a way that very few sports do. And you can test yourself and you can see just how far you can go or can't go. And you, you're confronted with your limitations. So it's more than just the act of running. It, it transcends that in so many ways. And you know, you have had this amazing career as an ultra marathoner and done all kinds of amazing stuff that the listener you've heard me talk about when I was reading and talking about Dean's bio in the beginning of the show. 
but you've DNF'd, right? Which for the listeners did not finish. Like you, you know, you DNF'd, you know, the, the Western States 100, which is a huge high profile race in the ultra marathoning world. You said in the book that the thought of returning terrified you. Why do it? Cause listen, the, the listener, cause I just want to connect the dots for them because they also failed at something right? Whether it's starting that business or a relationship or the diet where they've tried to lose the 20 pounds and they just can't seem to stick to it or whatever that thing is, like they've failed and they're probably terrified too. Like we're all scared of something, right? And usually success and satisfaction and fulfillment is on the other side of that fear, but that fear holds so many people back. And so you're thinking of this Western States 100, you're thinking of this huge race again that is nothing but pain and suffering and you're terrified, but you sign up to do it again. Where does that come from and why? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you said something really interesting that, you know, failure doesn't stop people. It's the fear of failure that stops people. <laughs> and I think that throughout the course of any given day, people fail more than they realize. They're just little micro failures. You know, you might send an email that falls flat and that's a failure. And I encourage people to experiment with failure. I mean, you know, most people can't do five push-ups, and, you know, challenge them to do it and they'll fail. They'll get to maybe three or four and their arms will give out and they'll fail. And that's just a micro failure. And we do that continually as we grow. But taking on the Western states again was a huge, huge, bold, big, visible failure, as you stated. And for me, being a very visible you know, person within the sport, you know, for me to fail would say more than just not finishing the race. I mean, it would kind of say, this guy's irrelevant now. He's, he's lost his relevance. You know, he can no longer do this stuff. So the stakes were really high. <laughs> and when the stakes get higher, you know, your anxiety rises and, and everything else. Uh, but that said, I also, you know, trained harder as well. And, you know, who's saying, if at first you don't succeed, train harder. <laughs> so, you know, to me, having a, you know, a task or a, a goal like that ahead of you, a big, you know, they call it a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. It can be motivating as well as terrifying. And so, you, you know, I'm a big believer in making these commitments, like commit to something, like sign up for something that scares you. And for the listener, that may be a running race. It may be something totally different in your world, but make that commitment, find the thing that you fear and like do the thing, like sign up, you know, pay the money, you know, sign up for the course, make the commitment, announce it to the world, whatever it is. Make that commitment for that thing that you fear, but you will find so much more capacity in you than, than you realize. I mean, I think you, you did this, Jim, and I'm really, <laughs> I'd like to hear more about it. You ran a marathon and I tell people all the time, you know what, you need to run a marathon. And they look at me and they say, well, I'm, I'm not even a runner or that's crazy. I could never do that. And I say, that's why you have to do it because you think you could never do it. And it's a challenge that's very, very visible. You know, the marathon is, it's a known entity. So it's intimidating, but you learn a lot about yourself and you prove to yourself you're better than you thought you were and you can go further than you thought you could. So, you know, what, what led you to running a marathon? Yeah. You know what? I, that's a great question, Dean. And I think it will be relevant for the listeners to hear. Like my first experience as a runner was I was in eighth grade. It was the summertime in Pennsylvania. It was 85 or 90 degrees outside. And I had qualified for the national championships and I had to lose weight. I had to make weight. And so what did I do as a wrestler? I had to put on a plastic suit, top and bottom, put on a winter cap, a sweatshirt, sweatpants, and go for a run. 
and it was hell. And this was my first experience running. And I had to do that, you know, over the course of a week or so to just wring my body out, wring the water out, which is not a healthy thing for the listener, by the way, I don't recommend it. And the sport has changed dramatically since then in terms of weight cutting and weigh-ins and whatnot. But that was this like experience. And then from then on, I told myself this story. I hate running. I'm not good at running. I don't like running. It's just something I'm not good at. I told myself that for decades. And finally, when I was in my mid thirties, I said, wait a second, this is a silly thing to tell myself. And so I signed up for a half marathon and completed it. And I enjoyed it, right? I got over that fear. I st- and they changed my language to, from I hate running and I'm not good at running to, I didn't totally lie to myself. I didn't say I love running. I said, I'm starting to enjoy running and I'm starting to get better at running because that's a little white lie. It's big enough to believe or small enough to believe. And then later on, I always knew that I wanted to complete a marathon. So I did the same thing. I made the commitment. I, I created the commitment. I found the marathon that I wanted to run and it got canceled because of the pandemic. But my running partner and I said, we're still going to do it on our own. So we did. We ran the marathon by ourselves, you know, no fans, no nobody, but we did it. Right. And it was, it's you against you, right? That's really what these challenges are about because Dean, I want to turn this back over to you. Inside of us is self-doubt. Inside of so many people is this imposter syndrome. And we feel like at some level we're a fraud. At some level, you know, we feel like we haven't lived to our potential and we're not sure if we actually have that potential. And I think that's what these tests, whatever form they come in for people, but these tests help to reveal the potential that we have. And I think a lot of people are fearful of that potential, but also fearful to test it. So you've talked about that. You've talked about after races, you feel this imposter syndrome as well. And you you are one of the most recognized and successful people in the world in what you do. And you deal with this as well, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I heard you read the intro, sometimes I hear these, these words and I think, who is this guy? Like... <laughs> He sounds amazing. And I just don't believe it's me. You know, it's, and I walk into my trophy room and I see, you know, hundreds of trophies from, you know, I've been on all seven continents twice now, you know, I see awards and certificates and all this stuff. And I think, hold it, that, did I really, is this really stuff that I earned? <laughs> it doesn't seem real. And I guess that's because I, I've never really satisfied with who I am. I mean, you know, Nike has their famous catchphrase, you know, just do it. And they don't have a phrase for after you just did it, then what? <laughs> you know, there's a hundred mile race. Well, I just do it. I did it. Then what do you do? And you're kind of left flat. Like, you know, how do you grow from here? How do you keep exploring and expanding? And I think a lot of people feel that people that, you know, have realized high achievement, I think feel imposter syndrome more so than people that haven't in certain ways. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. If my wife were listening and she might be listening right now, she would say, Jim, when you say you're never satisfied, because I feel the same way, right? Always striving, always looking for the next challenge and the next thing. She would say that's not healthy. I mean, how do you respond to that? That there's this idea that, okay, I just ran across the country, across the United States of America, but I'm still not satisfied. 
how do you respond when, when someone might say like, that's not healthy, right? There, there should be, uh, you should be happy with who you are and in the moment and then that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, this is coming from a guy who quoted as saying, you know, show me a man that's content and I will show you an underachiever, <laughs> which is kind of this, you know, constant strive, constantly striving. And I think that when the striving is forced and not authentic, then it becomes more of a struggle and you really start to question, you know, what you're all about. Uh, you know, early on, the striving was very authentic and it was very you know, organic. It's like, it's what I wanted to do. And then when you, you know, you reach higher and higher at a point, you're almost scratching and it's, it's just, you're forcing it. You know, there's a quote, life is a, a delicate dance between making it happen and letting it happen. And at a point, you know, when you're trying to make it happen too hard, it's a self-defeating sort of behavior. Yeah. This is who you are. This is what you do. This is not something that you do for show. This is not something that you do because others want you to do it. Like you do this because you're wired for this, Dean. And for the listener, I want you to understand, like, what are you wired for? Like, what is it that you're bottling up? and holding back because of whatever reason, right? Dean could have bottled, you could have bottled this running addiction up because you said, well, no, I can't, can't earn a living doing that. Well, it doesn't matter. You do it because you do it. You do it because of who you are. Like let that version of you out of the bottle. I'm talking again to the listener. So Dean, when you get to that point where you're running a hundred K or hundred mile or a long race, and you're like at mile 99, you're going, ah, this is easy, man. I'm going to sprint across the last mile. Like, obviously we know it's not easy, right? For the listener, I encourage you to read the book. Like, it's not easy. There's pain and suffering even for the best in the world. Uh, maybe especially for the best in the world. There's pain and suffering that goes into this. When you get to that moment, because every listener either is in that moment in some facet of their life right now, or they will get to that moment, or they've been in that moment where they want to stop. They want to quit their body, their mind, their family, their friends, they're all telling them to quit and to stop. In those moments of pain, how do you keep going? Yeah, you know, I people say, what do you think about when you're in those moments of pain? And I don't think, you know, thinking gets you in trouble. Instead, I try to be in the moment of time, the here and now. So I just tell myself to put one foot in front of them. Just say, take your next step to the best of your ability. Okay, take your next step to the best of your ability. Don't think about how far you've got to go. Don't reflect on the past. Just be in the here and now and in the present moment and just take your next step as best you can. And it's almost like a zen-like state you can put yourself in. And you know, sometimes I've been in that state for six or eight hours, just saying to myself, all you're thinking about is your next step. And your mind tends to wander. Let's face it, our minds are very active, you know, even now, as you're listening to this interview, your mind is probably scurrying around in a lot of different directions. It takes a lot of discipline to bring yourself back to that place where you're just in the here and now. And all you're focusing on is taking one step and taking the next step and taking the next step. And I've just, I've learned to have that disciplined thought that gets me through these low points. In one moment of the book and in one moment of one of the races, you say, uh, and this is a quote straight from the book, you said, the air was still ripples of heat rising from the valley's floor. There was no sound except for my breathing and my murmuring the affirmation, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Is self-talk important? 
I think so, especially in those dark moments, because it's not in everyday life we get ourselves in a situation that is that critical, you know, as to running a hundred miles. But now I can, I think, with COVID, it really is. I mean, I think a lot of people, including myself, have kind of had these really dark, difficult moments where I'm just saying to myself, you know, get out of bed. You can do this. You can do this. And so I think the lessons from from running, especially from running an ultra marathon or a marathon, translate into life, you know, very well. When your sister, Perry, rest in peace, was 18 years old, she died in a car accident. Where were you at in your running career at that point? Were you running or were you not running yet? And how have you coped with that over the years? Yeah, you know, she was my younger sister and we were like best friends. I mean, we were really close and she had seen me running, you know, in high school and she thought it was the greatest thing ever. She always used to say, running makes you so happy. You got to keep doing it. And I had stopped running when she passed away and it was horrible. I mean, I, I didn't know how to cope. I didn't have the skills to cope. I didn't know where to turn to cope. You know, it unraveled my family completely and I was rudderless. And so I suffered all the, the signs of bereavement. I mean, there was first, there was anger, lots of anger. And I turned that into self-destruction. You know, I crawled into a bottle <laughs> and just, you know, when I got to a place where I couldn't handle it anymore, I just drink. And that seemed to work very well until it didn't. And then there was denial, like it didn't really happen. And, and finally, you know, I came to grips with it. It took a decade of, you know, going through every type of way to self-damage myself, <laughs> you know, with drugs, with, with alcohol. And I finally came to the, the realization that I was doing her no, no justice whatsoever, that she won't want to see me living like this, that she would want to see me, you know, making the most of every moment to celebrate her existence. And that's when the light kind of, you know, went on and I flipped the switch and just said, you know, don't kill yourself because of, of what happened. Honor her by living your best life and cherishing the memories you have of her. And once I was able to do that, uh, everything changed. Yeah. Charlie Engel. Are you, do you know Charlie Engel? Yeah, sure. He's a good friend of mine. Yeah. I've known him for years. Yeah. Yeah. I bet he is. I'm sure it's a, a small world at the top of the endurance athlete world. Well, I had Charlie Engel on a while back and he mentioned that, you know, he, he had dealt with addiction himself and came out of that dark place and running and endurance competition and feats were a replacement for his addiction. Is running an addiction for you? I would think without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a healthy addiction and there's nothing like the runner's high. I experienced it profoundly. And to me, it's just a sense of contentment. You know, it's, it's funny how, you know, you can head out on a run and you've got so many problems. And by the end of the run, mysteriously, <laughs> the problems are gone. Like it's all put back in perspective and you, you just realize something more primordial that, you know, you're alive and, you know, life doesn't last forever, but now life is good. And to me, running is, you know, it's, it's the best addiction ever that you could have. And I think Charlie agrees with that. I mean, and, you know, to your point, you know, he, he's, he was in some real bad places. Yeah. I remember the, for the listeners, like the value of having this type of outlet. I remember when I was in college and I was in grad school actually, and there was a really hard grad program and it was a lot of work during the day. All is, you know, 
a long program or really ended about 8 p.m. at night. And people in my program were having nervous breakdowns and stressed out. And on top of all that, I got to go to wrestling practice twice a day, right? Morning workout, afternoon workout, and, and you know, pain and suffering, you know, bleeding and all that going on. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I have so much more on my plate. I'm competing on the weekends and making weight and all this, you know, is my senior year, my last year of competing and all the pressure. But I realized in hindsight, like I had an escape, I had an outlet that other people didn't have. And so I encourage the listener, like if you're dealing with something, you can find healthy ways to place whatever addiction that you're dealing with or find an outlet that is healthy, a healthy outlet for you to just release the pressure and, uh, and get an escape from the real world. Because I tell you, over this past year, a lot of people have dealt with a lot of really challenging things through the pandemic. And thank goodness for working out because it has been a, a huge escape for me. Yeah, I was saying motion stirs emotion. And I think that any sort of movement, especially cardiovascular movement, is a healthy thing, especially now. Dean, I want to ask you about habits. Are there any habits that you do or have done over the years, outside of running, obviously, that you credit for your success? Anything that you do on a regular basis, maybe it's daily, maybe it's weekly or, or otherwise, that you feel have really helped you succeed in your life? I do 25 burpees every day when I roll out of bed. And if you don't know what a burpee is, you know, just Google it. It's horrible. <laughs> but I, I force myself every morning, you know, to do 25 burpees. You know, we know about the, the, the book and the you know, famous gentleman that promoted Make Your Bed, which is just, you know, start every morning with success by making your bed. And making my bed just wasn't doing it for me. So, you know, I figured if I can do 25 burpees right out of bed, you know, you can't have a bad day. So I, once I started that, I started that during the pandemic and that that's a habit that's going to stick. Yeah. So you win the day right away. Right away. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Dean, you've had such a successful career, not only as a runner, but as an author. Can you tell us about a time when you failed? Because from the outside looking in, it's like, man, he, he's successful. He, he starts running on a whim, you know, he's drunk at a bar and he starts running and that becomes his career. He becomes one of the best in the world at it. He writes his first book that becomes a New York times bestseller, man. Things are just easier for Dean. Can you share about a time when you fail? I mean, the name of the podcast is success through failure. Has there been a time when you've failed and you've succeeded either despite it or maybe even because of it? Yeah. I mean, I, I can turn to race experiences for sure. The, the first time I tried to do this race called the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which is a 135 mile nonstop foot race across Death Valley in, in the middle of summer, I failed miserably. I made it about halfway and I literally passed out on the roadside and had to be driven to safety. So a lot of people would say, wow, you know, you're lucky you lived. I'm sure you're never going to do anything like that again. And to me, I had the opposite reaction completely. I said, you know, I've got to go back out there and redeem myself. So I went back out to Badwater and, you know, it was terrifying standing at that starting line, not just because I was fearing failure, just because the race itself is so intense. I mean, when you're running through stovepipe wells, you know, and it's 128 degrees, it's like running on hell and it commands your attention. It, it owns you. And it, it's so intense that you're fearful of this thing. It's a beast. But I went and I finally finished the second time I tried it. And I thought, you know what? You can even improve on that. And I eventually went back and I, I won the race. And I've now done it 10 times. Do you think you could have won it had you not struggled and labored and even failed in the beginning? 
I think each race I learn more and more. And I think that holds true today. I mean, I think I learn a little bit of something new with every ultra marathon I do. And I think it just built on itself. And one year, you know, I came in second and I thought, you know what, I, I could have won that race. Like, and I think I can win it. So I'm going to come back next year with the sole intent of just winning this race. You know, usually I go into a race just thinking I'm going to do the best I can. You know, I, I can't control the weather. I can't control the competition. I can, can just control myself. But with the particular race, the Badwater Ultra Marathon, I trained all year to win the race. I mean, that was my stated purpose going into it. It's like, I really want to win this. I'm going to do everything I can to win the race. And I won the race. For the listeners who are taking all this in and they're shaking their head and saying, yep, I get it. I get, I get the message and I get the, the value of this mindset. What's an action item that you might recommend? Something they can do in the next, say, 24 or 48 hours to really start leveling up in their life, facing their fears and taking that first step in maximizing their own potential. Sign up for a physical challenge. And, you know, I would suggest running, but if it's not running, maybe try a Spartan race, like an obstacle course race. Do something that's physical. And just find that event online and hit enter, you know, hit registration. And once you're registered, tell all your friends and your family, hey, I'm going to do this. And then you have some accountability. And it might not be for three or six months down the road, but you'll think about it every single day. Like, I've got this challenge coming up. I've got to train. I've got to be a little more disciplined in everything I'm doing. I'm not going to have that, <laughs> that bag of potato chips because I got this, you know, Spartan race or this half marathon coming up. So I think through taking on physical challenges, you learn about who you are and you can apply those lessons, you know, to life, to relationships, to business, to everything else. And for the listener, yeah, I highly recommend. It. I mean, don't even think about it. Just find the race, find the challenge and sign up for it. Think about it later. I actually signed up for a Spartan race for later in the year. I'm, I'm doing the half marathon distance with like 30 some obstacles. So that'll be uh that'll be a fun challenge for me a few months down the road. Dean, thanks so much for making time to come on the show. Tell the listeners where they can find your new book, where they can follow you, et cetera. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Someone said, if you Google Dean, I'm the first person that comes up. So <laughs> just put in Dean in a, in a, in a search engine and uh, you, know, you can find my website I'm on social media. A Runner's High, my new book is available you know, on Amazon and other, you know, all other booksellers. So uh, pick up a copy, I think. It's a fun read. It's it's nothing heavy, and um, I think you'd you know, you'd enjoy it. It certainly deals a lot with success and failure. Yeah, it's a fun read. It's an easy read. It's an amazing story. Just so many of your race stories woven through there, and so many life lessons woven through that book. It's an absolutely fantastic success through failure story. So, Dean, thanks for making time to come on the show. Thanks for having me on, and I, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.